The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Our study today, again, is the Eighth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not steal. I never imagined when I first thought of how I would exposit the Ten Commandments that uh, I would need four sermons to explain what the Bible has to say about theft. Some of the commandments uh, ought to be very easy for us to get through and really not need much time of explanation, but we do find that with every one of them, we, we, we need to stop and carefully consider how comprehensive these commandments are. There are only ten statements that cover all the sins that can be committed. The world's population is now about seven and a half billion people, and those seven and a half billion cannot commit a sin that is not in the Ten Commandments. Uh, it, it's a wild and crazy ride to figure out how many people have lived since the beginning of time. Uh, population formulas at best are very difficult to explain, and I don't think that I can. Uh, evolutionists say that there are about 300 billion people that have lived on this planet, and most of them lived, of course, before there was any reliable record of population statistics. Well, that begs the question, of course, where are the bones of all these 300 billion, billion people I mean, why is it that we can't find huge caches of human bones? Scientists say homo sapiens, that's you and me, homo, homo sapiens uh, have been on earth for about 50,000 years. Well, if that's true, not counting all the transitional forms from ape to man, which is where they said that we came from, you can reduce that 50,000 uh, years of population down to about... Uh, 108 billion people. Creationists, of course, believe that the earth is much younger, and they put the numbers of people that have lived since the beginning at about 25 to 30 billion people. And you say, well, what, what's the point of all that? Well, my point in telling you this is that all of them were sinners, and none of them ever committed a sin that can't be found in these 10 statements of Exodus chapter 20. And that shows how profound and comprehensive these statements are. Jesus said that this is all the law. All the law of God is found in the Bible. All the moral law is in the Bible. So there is no law that's outside of these commandments. And so that would mean if we complete the exposition of one command in only four sermons, then we've actually accomplished a monumental feat. And there must still be tremendous amounts of areas that we haven't covered. Now, if we completed the study of the Ten Commandments in ten sermons, then you weren't given enough information. So I'm glad that you're here, and I'll tell you as much as I can, and you'll learn some things that you thought that you never needed to know. Now, to give you an idea of the magnitude of the ways that there are to steal, I found a list that is by no means exhaustive, but the commandment can be broken in these ways. By robbing a person, a store, an organization by shoplifting, by loafing on the job, by not paying debts, by keeping something borrowed, by not paying taxes, by deceptive advertising. 
And I'll stop there for just a moment. When I got into the office this morning, I opened up uh, the materials that I have to look through for the week. And I think it's Linda who left this for me. And I just have to read it to you. Deceptive advertising. Here's, a, here's a, an example of that. A man traveling in southern Indiana was headed for the Kentucky border when he saw a large sign, last chance for a dollar and 25 cent gas. He still had more than a quarter of tank left, but figured he'd better take advantage of this opportunity and fill up his tank. Well, as he was getting his change from the attendant, he asked, how much is gas in Kentucky? And the attendant replied, a dollar and 10 cents. Um, that gives you an idea of deceptive advertising, telling a lie that way. How else? Well, by, by keeping overpayments or overshipments of goods, by overcharging and price gouging, by not paying just and fair wages, by not giving a full day's work on the job, by just unjust accounting of business trips, by manipulating information on stocks for personal gain, by abusing sick days, arriving late for work or leaving early, by stealing reputation and character through lies and gossip, by taking away the right to justice, by taking from your employer, by making unauthorized phone calls, by padding business expenses, by enslaving people for work or profit, by cheating to win a prize. And to that you can add things that we discussed last week like cheating on schoolwork and plagiarism and even worse, stealing from God by taking souls through false doctrine and stealing God's tithe and also stealing the Sabbath, which is God's day, and then using that for ourselves. Now that's a long list, and that's not the end of the list. But you can be sure that you and me and a seven and a half billion other people that live on this planet are guilty thieves in multiple ways. Honesty is not the chief virtue of any of us. Now that's a very bleak story. We've all failed in this command miserably, not considering all the other nine commandments that we've, we've eight that we talked about already and then the other two that are coming. There are just endless varieties of ways that these can be broken. And so we see why we ought not to think too highly of ourselves and think we are good enough for God. We also learn why the purpose of the law is to prove our sinfulness and show that we can't reach God unless someone should take the penalty of all of these sins for us. In Galatians 3, verse 23, Paul wrote, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, considering what I've just shown you and knowing our exceeding sinfulness, how is it that people say, I think that I will be good enough to get into heaven, that God will let me into heaven? Where is there any basis for such an absurd statement? Now, we are underwater so far in our sinfulness, that we are dead at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. There is no way, no hope for us, but Jesus Christ. Now today I have two orders of business to conclude the exposition of the Eighth Commandment. We've discussed the law of property, and the law of provision, and the law of prohibition. And now fourth in our discussion today is the law considered punitively. Now we've discussed what thievery is, 
and why this command was given. It guards property rights. It guards our trust in God's providence. It prohibits in any way that we might harm our neighbor by taking what is from him what is unjust for us to take. And now I just need to tell you the consequences of breaking this law. What is the punishment for theft? I think we first need to consider what God promised the first thief. Who was the third, first thief? Now, if you remember earlier in one of these sermons on the Eighth Commandment, I talked about Eve and how she stole from God, but Eve was not the first thief. She was the first human thief. The first thief was Satan. And Jesus talked about how he was a thief and how in the beginning he attempted to steal from God by taking his glory. And Jesus said that Satan came, the devil came, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the punishment for what he did is told to us in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if you continue reading there in Revelation, you'll find that everyone that believes Satan's lies will receive the same punishment that he receives not counting all the other myriads of ways that we can sin, theft takes us into the eternal punishment of hell. That ought to give you strong consideration when you decide that I'm going to take a roll of scotch tape from work. That might be less tempting when you understand what the eternal penalties of it are. But let me take you back into the Old Testament, and I want to discuss with you for a few minutes temporal consequences. What happens in this life because of theft and what does God have to say about it? Uh, there, there's a penalty for it and we've learned that these last commandments step down in intensity in their punishment after the seventh commandment. One through seven all have a punishment of death but when we get to the eighth the punishment changes. Thievery carries a penalty of restitution. If you kill someone, you can't make restitution because you can't give life. If you commit adultery with someone, you can never give back spiritual purity. But if you kill, or rather, if you steal from someone, you can give it back and you can make it right. But making it up is not as easy as you might think or else everybody would keep the stuff that they take and then bring it back whenever they want. They would borrow money from people or borrow their things and and they would keep it until they just felt like bringing it back. And so that's why there is a penalty that increases the amount paid in restitution. Now, in addition to that, the government, of course, may impose some jail time for it. And if you look a couple of pages over into the 22nd chapter in verse number 1, you find here a law of restitution. And just let me tell you what it says there, that it, it talks about a man, if he steals a sheep, that the payback for stealing a sheep is to give back four sheep. If you steal an ox, the payback is five, and the difference is the value of the animal to its owner. You see, a man, a man can uh, do without a sheep more than he can do without his ox. His ox plows his land for him. His ox pulls his cart. And so the ox uh, affects more of his livelihood than does the sheep. But e either one, there is more payback than what was taken. Now, I would like you to turn, though, to Leviticus chapter 27, and we'll read here. And I want you to look at the payback for stealing the tithe from God. Now, sometimes 
people in Israel didn't pay their tithes. Can you imagine anybody would do that? I mean, had you ever think of such a thing, that somebody would try to steal from God? Well, in fact, they do. Uh, what, what does God say about paying restitution for the tithe? Well, Leviticus 27, verse 31 says, And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. Now, I, I need to be fair about this and explain it, because I don't want to be guilty of misusing the Scriptures. The people were required to bring an offering of grain. When the harvest came in, they were to bring the first fruits to God. But what if a person decided that he would keep those first fruits and use them for himself? Well, there was a monetary value that was placed on that, on that grain that he was supposed to bring. And it wasn't a one-on-one -on -one transaction of the grain to be given to God and the price for it. So if they wanted to keep what should have been brought, then they had to pay dearly for that. So, for instance, if, if the grain, the tithe, the first fruits was worth $100, then if they were going to make up for that, if they kept it for themselves and they were going to make up for it, then they would have to give back, give God $120. Now, my, my, what I gather from that is that it's less costly to give God what he asked in the first place than it is to try and use it for yourself and then give it back later. 20% interest is what is required here. That hasn't worked since the days of Jimmy Carter. Now, th that raises a good question, though. What if you go for a little while, maybe even a great while, and you don't pay your tithes? Can, can you just skip over what you didn't pay and then just start fresh and begin to give anew? And my answer for that is, I don't know. I haven't tried to do that. Most people we know that aren't Christians don't tithe, but that doesn't mean they don't owe their tithe. They still do, so they sin against God when they don't tithe. So what happens when that person gets saved? Will they have to go back and make up for all of those tithes that they missed all those years that they weren't saved? Well, I can't answer that one, and the answer to that is no. And that's because God gives all sin, and so he forgives that debt of what's in the past. But then what happens after you're saved? Uh, now you no longer have a sin of ignorance involved. You know that you're supposed to give, and so not giving to God becomes an act, a sin of defiance and lack of faith. And so what happens then? Is there a penalty to be paid in restitution for a Christian who doesn't give God his tithe? Well, Haggai might have an answer for us. And Haggai chapter 1 verse 6 says, Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink but you're not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Now let me explain the problem in Haggai. Judah had just returned from captivity in Babylon, and they refused to obey God's orders in reconstructing the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. And so when they got back into Judah, they began to build their own houses first. And they didn't take time, and they didn't take money to repair the temple. And so they neglected it, and God said, because they neglected that he would turn their prosperity into waste. Well, I would tell you that if you don't tithe, you're a Christian who doesn't tithe, you're probably a person who's always struggling to make ends meet. Because usually people 
that tithe don't give a second thought about that. They just give and give and give, and they never think about whether it's hard or not hard. They love God, and so they give. But the person who doesn't tithe is the one who says, I just can't make it. I'm always worried about whether I'm going to have enough, where I'm going to have enough. And it's just like all the money they make is like putting their money into a bag with holes in it. Now, the moral of the story here is that you don't steal God's resources and misappropriate those for yourself because the penalties are too stiff. Well, here's another good question. Is there any time that stealing is okay? Are, are, there, any, are there any circumstances where you can have an excuse for stealing? Well, some think that there are. In fact, there's a verse in Proverbs that might appear that there is an excuse for stealing. But it must be read in context to understand the point. Let me, let me show this to you in Proverbs 6, verse 30. It says, Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. And so if a person is poor and hungry, is it okay for him to steal? What, what if his wife and his children are starving? So what does that verse mean? Is that okay? Well, it's important for us never... Never take a scripture out of its context and say, this is what it means. No, you've got to consider why this statement was made. Just this morning, I heard a, a preacher on television who made a very good statement. He said, when you take a scripture out of its context, then all you're left is with a con. Understand? So let's read it in its context. Proverbs 6, verses 30 to 35. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest him many gifts. Now, do you see what Solomon is actually talking about here? It's thievery, stealing. That's not the context here. The main thing here is adultery. And his point is that adultery is worse than stealing, and you can't make up for it. And of course, we've made that point. The penalties for adultery and stealing are different. So if you steal, you can make it up. But if you commit adultery, you destroy yourself. And there's nothing you can do that will make up for it. If you steal a man's wife, he's not going to be satisfied if you pay him for her. Well, some might, but most won't. Instead, the Bible says he'll seek vengeance. Nothing is going to satisfy him but vengeance. But let's go back to that person who stole that's mentioned here because he's hungry. Is he free? Well, no, his excuse is not accepted. It says the penalty has to be paid. Verse 31 says he must restore sevenfold. He must give all of his substance and his house. Well, what does that mean? He went and stole a piece of bread, a sack of groceries, and that means now he's going to have to give up everything that he has, and now he has to give all of his property because he stole from somebody. No, we need to understand what the Bible means when it says a sevenfold payment because what that means is that is the equivalent of saying that he shall do everything within his power to make restitution for it. He must satisfy that debt. Now, perhaps the person that he stole from might have sympathy on him and say, well, that's okay. You don't have to give it back. I realize you're hungry. So he might have mercy on him, but that man is not required to have mercy. Instead, there is a penalty to be paid. 
So the point is, there are no excuses. The law demands a penalty, and there is no provision in the law for mercy. It means, if it means starvation, you starve. Ezekiel Hopkins wrote, I say we ought not to do it in any case, for theft is in itself a sin, and there can be no necessity to sin. For every man is bound rather to choose the greatest evil of suffering than to commit the least evil of sin. That is hard stuff. You know that? That's very difficult stuff to live by. And yet the holiness of God is so much affected by even one sin that we ought to bear any suffering to avoid it. And you say, well, why? Well, because you've got to consider what Christ suffered for it. The least sin that a person can commit caused infinite punishment to be placed upon the Son of God in order to satisfy that penalty. And then you take the accumulation of all these sins, and there's more and more intense suffering. So every sin carries a high penalty, and there can't be an excuse for it. So you ought not to look for an excuse. The worst that a Christian could ever do is to suffer hardship in this life, whereas every sin that Christ died for, there was infinite punishment to pay for it. Now let's listen to a few scriptures about punishment for theft. Proverbs 21, verses 6 and 7. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a vanity tossed to and fro of them that seek death. The robbery of the wicked shall destroy them because they refuse to do judgment. Jeremiah 17, verse 11, As the partridge sitteth on eggs, and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches, and not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. Proverbs 22, 16, He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. And then there's this ultimate punishment that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And there you see the company that the thief keeps and how serious that is to God. Well, that leaves us, oh, and by the way, let me just back up for a minute when I say that's the thief. That's all thieves. It's not just the bank robber. That's the one who steals from God. That's the one who doesn't pay his tithes, the one who cheats, the one who cheats on his taxes, the one who does all these different things of theft. It doesn't specify what the theft is. The thief has his part in the lake of fire. He shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that leaves us then with, one other thing that I want to talk to you about today, and that is the positive aspect of this command. Every command that's negative has with it a positive side of it. Arthur Pink is always good at summing up the positive aspects of the commandments, and he wrote, the positive duty here enjoined is, you shall by all proper means preserve and further both yours and your neighbor's estate. This commandment requires proper diligence and industry so as to secure a competence for ourselves and families that we may not through our own default expose ourselves and them to straits which are consequences of sloth and neglect. Now just hold that thought in your mind for a moment and let me take you back to the three ways that property may be gained. And there are only three ways. We've discussed it before, but there are three ways to gain property. First is to steal it. 
And I've already told you, you can't do that. Uh, four sermons to tell you you can't steal. The second way is by gift. That property may be gifted to you. And that's a wonderful thing. But you don't have any control over gifts. They might come or they might not. The third way that you gain is by work. And so if you don't have two, that you obtain it by a gift, and you don't have three, that you've done it by work, then you expose your family to dire straits. And the last option is to, number one, steal. Now, if we expect a gift, it's probably not going to come about. So to avoid stealing, the thing that we do is to work for it. Don't expect the luck of a gift. Thomas Jefferson said, I'm a great believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. Work is the Bible's way of providing for you and your family, and work is a creational principle. God put Adam into the Garden of Eden and told him to till the garden, to dress and to keep it, and that wasn't a part of the curse. The curse just made work that much harder. Proverbs 13, verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, For even when ye were with, we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, and that you study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may have lack of nothing. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied to faith, and is worse than an infidel. Proverbs 1, 28, verse 2, For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Proverbs 12, 11, He that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. And Ephesians 4, 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working in his, with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Oh, there are dozens and dozens of scriptures about work. Honest work keeps you from dishonest thievery. But work as a principle of gain is bigger than what we do for ourselves. This command tells us to be honest with each other and that we ought to look out for one another. And that's part of the second table, isn't it? Love thy neighbor as thyself. So let's, let's talk for just a few minutes about the positives that flow out of this commandment. Now, number one, the first thing, the first positive would be honesty. How do you prove that you are an honest person? Well, a Christian should be one that no one doubts that he can be trusted, that someone could come to you as a believer in Jesus Christ and they could leave their possessions with you anything that they have and they could just walk away from it and expect when they come back it'll be there and it'll be safe and taken care of a person can lend to a christian and expect that they will get it back and not only will a christian protect his own stuff but he'll be very careful to protect all the goods of his neighbor now the law of god was very demanding on this point as well if it's within your power if it was within the power 
of, of, you, of, of, of a person to, to prevent theft of his neighbor's goods, then he was to give all diligence to make sure that somebody didn't steal from his neighbor. Even if that neighbor is an enemy, the Bible says you've got to protect his stuff. Exodus 23, verse 4, If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Proverbs 12, or rather Romans 12, 17, Recompense no, to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22, where we see that this, this, this burden is increased for taking care of what belongs to your neighbor. And we see here how the Lord expects that we always keep our neighbor's welfare at heart. Deuteronomy 22 and verse number 1. Deuteronomy 22, verse 1. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go, go astray, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if thou know him not, you don't even know who this belongs to, then thou shalt bring it to thy own house, and it shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it, and thou shalt restore it to him again. In like manner shalt thou do with his ass, his donkey, thou shalt do that with his raiment, and with all lost thing of thy brothers, which he hath lost, and thou hast found. Thou shalt do likewise. Thou mayest not hide thyself, or pretend like you didn't see it. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ass, his donkey, or his ox fall down by the way, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift him up again. So it says here, if you, if you find something that's lost, that you can't claim it as yours, that you are to give all diligence to find the owner. Now, admittedly, I, I'm a little bit concerned about my ability to do this in all circumstances. If I find your cat, I'm probably not going to go out of my way to take it home and feed it and go around the neighborhood posting flyers on utility poles that say, found a lost cat, call 1-800-PUT-TO-SLEEP. I probably won't do that. There, there's only so much that one man can do in this world. Do you know that? Uh, when, when you live in a neighborhood that's got so many cats that use my wife's flower garden for their personal latrine, you're not likely to bring a cat home with you. So if I find a cat, well, I'll make an exception. If it's Linda's cat, I'll, I'll keep it for her, and I'll, I'll get it back to her as, very, as quickly as I can. Uh, but the rest of you folks, you are on your own. If you find $20 in the seat today, don't keep it. Turn it in. And we probably won't search for the owner of it. Uh, instead, we'll consider that God has chastised somebody for not giving their offerings, so not tithing. But the Bible says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And that's really the outworking of Jesus' command in Matthew 7 and verse number 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men do to you, do ye also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That, that's what the Word of God says. I mean, you expect, this is what you'd want someone to do for you. That's, that's all that means. Just treat somebody like you want them to treat you. And do you recognize it? That's the fulfillment of what the Bible calls the royal law. James 2, verse 8, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Now secondly, the positive aspect of this command is contentment. Out of this command flows contentment. This command 
tells us not to overreact with dissatisfaction. 1 Timothy 6, 7, and 8. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. We brought nothing into this world. You are bare naked when you were born. And you survived this world only by the grace of God. You came into this world with a sin nature, but you had not yet sinned. And so what we don't want to do is leave nothing when we, uh, nothing when we leave this world except that sin on us, still on us. Well, the fact that you are alive is a testimony to the gracious mercy of God and His provision. Discontentment, though, is dissatisfaction with God. What's the best you can hope for? Hebrews 13, verse 5, Let your conversation, that is, your life, your manner of life, be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now that promise is far better than the promise of punishment. So be content with the promise that God gives. Now the third thing that flows out of this command is benevolence. Ephesians 4, 28 again, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. You see, work is not just for producing what you need. Charles Hodge, the 19th century Princeton theologian, made this great comment. He said, Christian principles, if fairly carried out, would speedily banish pauperism and other cognate evils from our modern civilization. Now, of all the world's religions, which one is the most benevolent? Which one is always known for helping people? Oh, there isn't any contest, is there? With Christians, wherever Christianity thrives, we find hospitals, and we find education. We find many, many works of public welfare. Western civilization, with its Christian influence, is light years ahead of the ideology of the Muslim states in their public benevolence. Now, in some ways, though, there is so much spending on the poor and so many government programs that many of us forget that there is also a personal responsibility to help people. And so we become hardened to the needs of others because all we really need to do is just hand people off to a government program and let the government take care of them. And so there is no such thing hardly anymore of personal sacrifice. But the government ought not to take over all of our charitable giving. And so when God gives to you, He doesn't intend for you to keep all of it for yourself. With that increased wealth comes increased benevolence. And that's especially true when we talk about giving to the Lord's church, that the amount that you give is not a measurement of your sacrifice. The measurement is the amount that you have left over for yourself. That tells you whether there is a sacrifice. Now, plainly stated, your tithe is only a starting place of your giving. Now, giving is what keeps the doors of the church open. That, in turn, affords people around the world the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might not think that the small amounts that you give amount to very much. But the truth is that your Starbucks money added up over a month is abundant to a missionary in Kenya or in the Philippines. Now, we've been talking about a missions trip to the Philippines. I don't know if that's going to happen. But I was checking things out 
to see, well, where are we going to stay when we get there? And I was checking out hotels in the area where we planned to go, and I saw one hotel, I saw one hotel priced at $13 a night. A person in the Philippines could live like a king on your car payment. So a little sacrifice goes a long way in reaching people with the gospel in other parts of the world. I remember, uh, I think two years ago, we sent the study Bibles to Kenya to graduates of Brother Mongo's Bible College. And you would think that when we sent those, those study Bibles that we had sent the Oxford University Library because that's a resource that they had no hope of attaining. $75 for a, for a study Bible, and that was an amazing gift to them. And can you imagine how much good help is provided how much education is provided and help for studying the Word of God and how thousands can come to Christ over a period of time because you gave a gift to a Kenyan preacher from a Bible college. This is a command about benevolence. Work not only for yourself, but for those who are in need. Now, fourthly, the positive aspect of this command, which you really do need to hear, is eternity. It works towards eternity. So flowing out of this command is the desire to channel our efforts towards eternity. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus said, what can I do to obtain eternal life? And you remember part of Jesus' answer was, do not steal. And then he said, sell everything that you have and give it all to the poor. And you know what he said the benefit of that was? You shall have treasure in heaven. What did Jesus do in that statement? Well, what he did was to pit the value of the temporal against the eternal. And this young man did not think much about the eternal because he went away sorrowful because he had much money. It was too much for him to give away, which showed that he wasn't ready for eternal life because he loved his money more than he loved God. This man, you remember, started out by saying, I've kept all of the law. But Jesus discovered to him that he'd broken both tables of the law just as surely as when Moses came down and destroyed those two tablets of stone. That he broke the first table of the law because he did not love God more than his money and he broke the second table of the law because he cared too little for his neighbor to give to him. Now most rich people have all kinds of elaborate schemes for holding on to everything that they have. Security systems and bodyguards and safes and locks and keys. All of those things are used because they're afraid that somebody is going to steal what they have. And earthly goods are always that way. They're always subject to theft. But eternal treasures aren't that way. And Jesus emphasized that in Matthew 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now the great problem that we have is, is convincing people to give up what is eternally insignificant in the present time to receive what is incredibly invaluable benefits in eternity that is to come. I can't convince you to do that. Your heart will not allow you to be convinced. You're not going to do what Jesus asked the rich man to do. The only thing that can make you do that is a change of heart. And only the great physician can change your heart. 
And the evidence of a changed heart shows up in things like bringing your tithes and offerings, bringing a sacrifice to give to God to help others. Now, if you're a person who always struggles with that selfishness that you can't give, you just can't give, then you've got a heart problem. Jesus identified that very quickly with the rich man. And what amazed the disciples when he said, oh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And what was the problem? Is it the riches? No, it's not the riches. The riches only exposed the problem of the heart. Here was a man who had no peace about eternal life, but he should have had peace because he'd been taught all of his life just what the Jewish system said, that wealth is, wealth is the manifestation of the blessing of God. And he had great wealth, so he should have been all set. Peace in his heart that he had eternal life, but he had none. Because that's not the answer. That's not what was going to make him happy. The problem, folks, is the heart. If you can't give, that's always it. It's the heart. Well, I think that we could end the exposition here. In a world of 7.5 billion people, most of them have not discovered the most valuable. Oh, they steal because they're confused about what is the most valuable. This is a commandment that catches all of us. We fail in honesty. We're never content. We never show enough benevolence because we love ourselves too much to care about our neighbor. Our heart is on the things of this world, not on things in heaven. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. If you want a remedy for stealing, there it is. For all of your dishonesty, that verse covers it all. Set your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You see, Jesus never left people perplexed without a remedy. Here are all these commandments, he says, that you are to keep. And he's not going to leave you without a remedy because you're a sinful creature. And so he says in Luke 21, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. And so he says, Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and stand before the Son of Man. And you know what Jesus always concludes with? I am your escape. I'm the way that you're going to get out of this world and go to heaven, even though you're a thief. Even though you've broken all these commands, I am the way that you'll get to heaven. Pray and watch that you enter not in temptation. Trust in Jesus Christ. Now finally, in the words of Pink, he said, if your Savior was crucified between two thieves, that the gift of salvation might be yours, bring no reproach upon his name by any act of dishonesty. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we survey the Ten Commandments. Time after time after time, we see our guilt. We don't correct these things as we should. We make up our excuses and 
There is no excuse at all. Never an excuse to sin. The Word of God never gives us one excuse for any sin of any kind. Lord, knowing that we are sinful people and that we can't help ourselves, that we can't pull ourselves out of this depravity that we're in, we know the only thing that we can do is set our hearts, our affections on you, on Jesus Christ, who is above. And Lord, we just pray that you would open someone's eyes to that today to show the only help to escape the penalty of the law in any of these commandments is Jesus Christ, the Savior of this world. Help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.